0: Hello, and welcome to episode 10 of the American Years podcast. I'm Kate Simpson, coordinator of the American Years Project. Our project is creating space for and recording the many stories and memories of all the people whose lives are intrinsically linked to the American Navy's presence in the Holy Lock by Danoon on the west coast of Scotland. In this episode, I talk to a local author, sailor, and my dad, uh, Ewan Ross, about growing up in the Holy Lock, in the shadow of the ship.
1: Who am I? Well, Ewan Ross, a local from Cowell, Lock District, um, grew up there, went to Rashfield School, then Dunoon Grammar. For my sins, I was the school captain there. And then from there, went to Aberdeen University, then Robert Gordon's Business School, then Strathclyde University. And basically, after all that was over and a little bit of practical work, I took the first opportunity available and moved overseas to work. And there after 30 years overseas before before coming home. And since then, I've been doing a little work from here. Uh, but more recently, I've been writing, writing the books. Well, I was eight, it was what, nine, nine years old when uh, when the Americans arrived. Uh, before that, we had obsolete liberty ships moored in the loch. And then there's a whole history of, of redundant vessels being moored there after uh, Well, beginning of the century, maybe around 1905, we had early battleships moored out there. And then after the First World War, there were also uh, naval vessels. Then in in uh, 1939-45 war, there was was a British uh, submarine base, yeah, which survived the duration of the war. After that, then we had the Liberty ships. And I remember my father used to, in the summer, go down and swim out to these boats for a cup of tea and then have an ethy biscuit with the skeleton crews. So anyway, the Americans arrived when when I was about nine, I think March uh, nineteen sixty one. And um, my friends and I, we 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 saw the boat coming in in the distance, but then we went off and did something more interesting. Uh, when we came back back to the house, there it was sitting in front of the house. And basically life was never the same for the next 30 years for people in the loch side. Uh, The continual noise of generators, it was never quiet. It was never dark because of the arc lights on the boat, which were on 24 hours a day. And uh, we could hear everything that that was going on out there. You'd have the continual fire, fire, fire. This is not a drill, everybody to XYZ stations. Uh, And indeed there were, you know, people did die. Fires on board. There were nuclear emergencies. There were all kinds of things happened that were routinely denied. But you know, that 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 was life on the lock at that time, and we became used to it. It it came almost permanent.
0: Yeah, people have uh, said that there there people had a different experience with the ship if they were on the lock side compared to those that weren't. You know, folk that were in Ellen or towered.
1: You know, yes, they yes. didn't
0: experience the physicality of actually living
1: yes, that spirit. it was it was literally in your face. Uh, and um, at night as kids would go to bed and we hear all this stuff going on until we went to sleep. Because uh, it was it was a 24 hour operation so there was just a lot going on all the time. Uh, the noise of diesel engines with the little ferries they had going back and forward uh all kinds of you know submarines coming in during the night leaving during the night loading operations unloading operations and uh, shortly after the, the proteus arrived which was the original boat which was an old world war ii submarine depot ship that they they lengthened by cutting it down the middle and putting 44 feet in to to accommodate the polaris missile storage unit uh, <laughs> so that the ship was there first of all and then at the same time uh in the lock next door we saw these um prefabricated sections for for the floating dock appear one by one and by the end of 1961 i think the thing was assembled and also moved in the lock and that was another huge structure in a small lock so so the lock was sort of divided into uh, two shores the uh, with, the, with the American Navy's uh, conurbation in the middle of it. Some years ago, uh, when we'd have been The late, late 80s, uh, we were in Hawaii and uh, went to Pearl Harbor and to the museum there. There's a, a sort of modernistic-shaped uh, museum, which is out on the water over one of the, one of the hulks that's still there has been left as a war grave, um, paid for by Elvis Presley, if I remember correctly. And in that museum, there was a big oil painting of um, missiles loading and unloading in a in a dark night with heavy rain. And this was the Holy Loch. And it was just so weird to see that depiction of what I looked at out my windows and for so many years. And there it was. Um, yeah, in Hawaii. Do
0: you remember the first American that you met or the first group of Americans from the ship that you met?
1: Uh, First Americans would be some kids at school, I guess, a Rashfield school, primary school. There were a couple of kids. It was, I may have got this wrong, but as as I remember, when the American kids arrived, their school system didn't have them at the same places as we were. So they were often a couple of years behind uh, or, or they were put back a little bit so that life was easier for them. Because I think the early years of her education system was more relaxed than the Scottish system was at that time. That's what I remember about the Americans. As for the men, my mother, she was widowed a couple of years after the boat arrived. And after she had got through the mourning process, um, she had a wild old social life with her friends and the American officers. Uh, because the, the officers part, uh, rented the big uh, seaside villas around the shore of the loch and And were forever entertaining the local local society and in inverted commas, uh to cocktail parties and dinners and and, and yeah, she, my mother loved it. Uh, she enjoyed their company, and the American officers were certainly men with charming manners and they knew how to talk to a lady. the The ratings were a bit different. At secondary school, our gym teacher, Joe Dallas, uh, introduced softball school, which we thought was a bit, a bit pandering to the invaders a little bit because it became quite a big part of the curriculum. But that was introduced especially for the Americans. We had no idea what it was, and it didn't seem like a very soft ball to us either. It's like a cricket ball. I mean, the, the, the guys in my class or, or guys that I knew, they were all fine. They were good guys. The whole, the whole business of, of the Americans coming here, it, you know, it was, it, was, it was such a long saga of it. But, but we actually, Dunoon has had long associations with, with America, mainly from the Civil War when captains and, and ship owners who were running from Bermuda to, uh, to the south, blockade running, invested heavily in shipping. And then when they made their money, they came and retired in Dunoon and invested in property. So a lot of the Danone villas are are paid for by uh, ill-gotten gains through through the locade running. Subsequently, the business of the the base coming here and and the study for that, Roosevelt was determined that the base would be located somewhere where where it was near to a major city where the sailors could enjoy R&R and have access to civilization. Mm -hmm. Um, And girls basically, that was... That was the argument, so they weren't interested in going anywhere where there wasn't prospect of of um, female company uh, the, the main sectors that benefited from the Americans being here there was well I guess taxi drivers and and the Glasgow hookers because they spent a lot of the money in glasgow uh, although they they bought things locally in the early years uh, it wasn't long before they built a commissary and uh, so everything they bought basically came from the states and their impact on local business reduced so a few pubs and taxi drivers and hookers that was about the limit of the impact so it's, it's often vastly overstated you know that what the be- benefits the, the americans brought living on the shore of the Holy loch um, on the north shore and uh, just looking over it 24 hours a day it's it's always been something that's been fascinating to us. Um, everyone who lives there because it, it's scenically, it's, it's superb. Uh, south facing it's in a nice little microclimate. So it's warm, relatively speaking, uh, fairly sheltered. And everything that goes on in the lock, it's just a sort of little theatre. It's there's entertainment there. And when the Americans were there, there was 24 hour a day entertainment because Initially, at least the seamanship wasn't tremendous. They screwed up a lot of things and got into got themselves into trouble frequently. And ha- having this to watch was, was a, you know, a great thing. You could just sit and look out of the window rather than watch television. Yeah, a lot of stuff went wrong. Uh, and of course, we also, also watched the, the yacht racing from when we were kids. Uh, there was a, a, a racing mark in front of the house and the boats Going around that would always be entertainment on a Wednesday night. Holy Loch um, was, was the site of the two biggest yacht yards uh, on the Clyde, two of the biggest in the country, I would guess. Uh, they were, didn't necessarily build a huge number of boats, but they were the major storage and maintenance locations. And um, yeah, they were truly vast and great hangar-like buildings and hundreds of boats. Uh, that's, of course, it's all gone now, but it seemed so permanent when it was there. Compared to Fife's over at Fairley or McGrewers in the Gearloch, they were just sort of little operations, uh, although both built a lot of boats. But the, the Holy Loch yards were an industrial scale, justly famous.
0: Were the yards uh, still building when the Americans were here?
1: Yeah, um, the Sovereign and Kerriwa sixty three and sixty-four, I think. America's Cup boats were built when the Americans were already here. Scepter was fifty-seven, that was before the Americans arrived. But we were still building boats. Not a huge number of boats, but still building boats. gobersons like like Morrison Lorimers, both yards were killed when Dennis Healy raised VAT on boats. And there they were precarious operations and that just sort of uh, put the last nail in the coffin. Well, it was revoked a short time later, but it, you know the damage was done. And investors had already made the decision to pull out. The Queen's Harbour regulations for the Loch contained a provision where boats of the Holy Loch Sailing Club and the Benmore Adventure Centre could sail on the Loch uh, as long as they didn't approach nearer than whatever it was, two hundred feet to the boat. That was the prevailing legislation right through. So. course many of the boats in and out of the lock, and all the boats that were worked on at the yard most of them were not owned by holy loch sailing club members or or benmore adventure center but that was that was sort of a a loophole in the legislation that nobody seemed too bothered about my elder brother i think he was rescued by the americans twice which as far as i know was a record i don't think anyone else has been rescued twice once was enough most people and he was invited on board. Um, he and his crew, Ellis Patterson, was the my primary school teacher's son. They were invited on board for coffee and donuts, and and then taken taken back ashore afterwards. That was the early days when the, there was good hospitality, and when you know the feeling between the local community and and the, the ship was everyone was prepared to give it a go. We we didn't wanted to come in the first place, but they were here and they were mostly nice people. And, you know, everyone was prepared to give them the benefit of the doubt. And everyone got on pretty well. In subsequent years, it did change a bit. But yeah, that I mean, it, what the Americans thought of the yachting or the relationship with it, it was incredible to us that that they seemed to have so little interest. And there seemed to be so few sailors. The original crew which came in, that that crew was okay, but subsequent rotations, the the new recruits from Savannah had never been to sea. Now, there was a story that um, Bob Donaldson likes to tell that Callum McLaughlin, then the Commodore, was invited onto uh, Hunley, I think it was, for an overnight cruise down the Firth and back up again the next day. Uh, this is this sort of thing they did, you know, the hearts and minds operation. Uh, and, and Callum was was appalled at f- what he saw, basically. And, and the crowning glory was that the new recruits had red and green wristbands with a uh, potent starboard written on them, which, <laughs> which is just wonderful. I don't know if anyone ever got a photograph of that. Presumably the... There's um, a big community of Americans who were here and and who communicate online. It'd be nice to know if anyone's, you know, got a picture of that. From, I think, the second year they were there, the Americans uh, hosted what we call the Polaris Regatta. So they sponsored some trophies and um, uh, food and uh, a little bit of logistics. The, The trophies were fairly hideous, but... What was interesting to most people, at least in the early days until everyone had seen it all and done it all, was uh, was an invitation out to the ship. So after the racing on a the Saturday, they would lay on boats and take you out and and they showed the competitors around the ship. And yeah, it was interesting. It wasn't it wasn't at all like the Royal Navy. There was no uh ship-shaped, Bristol fashion type of activity. The men were very slovenly, generally wearing dirty trues and you know untucked t-shirts and stuff like that it was it was quite different and a lot of the particularly older guys were rather shocked by this lack of seagoing etiquette on the boat but i mean the the americans did things differently and uh, there you go
0: (laughs) did any of them ever take part in the in the in the racing
1: oh yes um the americans At about the time when they started, when they, when they um, sponsored the Polaris Regatta, they bought two enterprise dinghies, uh, 13-foot small sailing dinghies, and these were kept at the club and and used uh, by the American sailors, and uh, not so many of them were terribly interested, but, but the commander of the ship did make sure they were crewed for the regattas, but they were by no means expert. Sailors. Later on, they, they sold the Enterprises and they got a, a Loch Long and a Piper. Both of them new boats built at Robertson's. Uh, oh, they, they were new. they kept them for a while, but they found the Piper a little bit flighty for the level of skill they had, so they sold that and bought another Loch Long. Subsequently they sold the two Lochlongs and then a different a different recreation committee on a different boat. Because each time the boats rotated, you had different people obviously in charge of these things. I bought three secondhand pipers and had them for a while. But as an institution, they didn't look after their boats. And uh, so they were forever sinking at moorings or washed up on the beach or whatever. They they tried, but few people were terribly skilled. There was one trophy won by an American crew this was one year they were racing the Loch Long and uh, they did reasonably well in the first race on the Saturday. And uh, then the wind blew up and on, on the way back to the mooring, the, the boat had been steadily filling with water and there was a Southern gentleman steering the boat, I think, and a uh, Filipino crewing, And the boat just sort of gradually went under. And the, the, the ice box floated out of the cabin and sort of slowly went down. And of course, you know they were submariners, so they weren't faced by this. The Filipino chap, though, was had more of a sense of uh, self-preservation, and he climbed the mast as the boat was sinking. And Alec Waddell, the local boatman who did rescue boat duties puttered along, and the Filipinos stepped dry-shod onto Alex's boat just as the top of the mast was disappearing. True story. But then the next day, of course, they had no boat to sail, and um, they were allowed to uh, use their other boat, use the piper, so they actually competed in two different classes. And somehow the committee, in the spirit of a special relationship, I suppose, arranged to give them a combined result that gave them a prize. Uh, so, it's, <laughs> so basically, the the, the Lockalong won the prize posthumously. <laughs> That's the only prize the Americans ever won at any of the organised races.
0: Did you ever kind of hang out with any of the the Americans? And I'm I'm distinctly getting the impression that they had to choose to come and sail. So. It, Yes, it wasn't kind of part of their prescribed R&R to actually learn how to handle these small boats.
1: No, no, unlike the British Navy, um, which I think even now tries to get the, the guys into a whaleboat and teach them a little bit about sailing, the Americans didn't do that. The only decent sailor that I can remember was um, Tom McCrory. He worked for Rockwell Engineering as a contractor. So there were a number of people on the boat like him uh, who were not actually, you know, naval personnel, but they were attached to the Navy. And that's where most of the decent sailors came from. Tom uh, was impressed by the Piper, the Robertson's built boat. When he went back to the States, uh, he became an importer of the boats. And so there's there's a handful of Pipers, I think half a dozen in the States uh, through Tom. It's part of our culture, but there's an industry that's almost completely disappeared. I did a survey of it for the book and found that there were people who wanted to build you a boat and there were marinas where you could buy a boat built in Poland or something. But in terms of building, actually building boats, I think the biggest operation was Stormcats Nile building uh, speedboats.
0: Am I misremembering a story that someone's mast broke sailing underneath the anchor chain of the American ship?
1: Oh, right. Well, your Uncle Norman got stuck under the anchor chain. Uh, with... Oh, right.
0: That's... that's... <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, so that would be one of the two occasions. Yeah. He, he was, his rudder blade fell off, I believe. Uh, that was what he told me anyway. Interacting with the ship, there was, a, there was a, an incident uh, in the early days, again, just after the floating dock had arrived. And when the Americans had the Enterprise dinghies, one of, this, one of the officer's wives and her, her friend took the Enterprise out. And when the floating dock was submerged, they sailed into it and twiddled around. And everyone was just very relieved it was the wife of an American officer because. <laughs> but of course, it's something everyone had wanted to do, but they, she was the only one who had the courage to do it.
0: Hmm. You have been listening to the American Years Revisited podcast. Huge thanks to Ewan Ross for taking the time to share his experiences with us. Ewan's book Highland Cows on the History of Scottish Sailing can be bought in Bookpoint in Danone and is available online. Thank you for listening. See you next time.